Hello, you sick freak. Welcome to it. It is a Tuesday. Great show for you. We have Kevin Freeman on. He's the guy who actually tracked down for the Pentagon what happened right after the 08 collapse. Remember, somebody got really rich on the housing collapse. Somebody got rich on 9-11. He's the guy the Pentagon hired to track it down because there's something new that is going on. The media seems to be trying to make this into a Trump scandal, but it's not. It looks like it's a Chinese and uh, Iranian scandal in our stock market. What it means and what it even is. Also, Beto's thoughts on America. I mean... I think we all need to hear. We all need to hear those. Don't you? Um, We take some of the chaos and tie it together and show you what's happening around the world and ask you about agents of sabotage. Uh, We talk about Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax and why exactly it wouldn't work in unconstitutional and an amazing, amazing hour with Max Lucado, how happiness actually happens all on today's podcast. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. All right, so there's a couple of things going on in the world that I want to address and try to tie together. My only real skill in life, I think, uh, is uh, to be able to see a bigger picture. I want you to I want you to look at the demonstrations in Lebanon, Chile. Spain, Haiti, Iraq, Sudan, Russia, Egypt, Uganda, Indonesia, Ukraine, Peru, Hong Kong, Zimbabwe, Colombia, France, Turkey, Venezuela, (gasps) the Netherlands, Ethiopia, Brazil, Algeria, Ecuador. And what's happening in England? Now, what happened last night in Canada? And I want to break these up into two different categories. Usually when you have riots or you have violent protests, it's because of one of two things. Either the people are hungry and they can't afford the things that they need and they see the government as a problem. Or the government's not listening to them and the government's not responding to them. Both of those things are happening, but there's a third new one that is also being injected. So let's look at some of these. For instance, um, you have fuel subsidies that have uh, that have been cut. So the the price of fuel has gone up in places like Haiti. They can't they can't afford it in Lebanon. They there's a new tax levied on the use of WhatsApp. That's the social media thing. That's also one of the causes for Uganda. They're starting to put taxes on social media. Now, why would you put a tax on WhatsApp and why would that cause a riot? This is really important. We'll come back to that here in just a second. In Sudan, it's the cut to fuel and uh, food subsidies. Uh, in Chile, they're, they're protesting subway fare hikes. Now, this is where WhatsApp comes in. You'll notice these aren't striking workers like we have with GM. These are just average people getting together on the streets. Now, how is that happening? That's happening now because we used to have to have labor unions because it was the only 
it was the only way to get the message out and we could all come together against the man. And so you had a labor organizer come in and he would organize everybody. But now you have WhatsApp. Now you have Facebook. Now you have the Internet. And so if you're if you're upset about gas prices, you can find other people that are upset about gas prices that you would have never met before. This is why the governments are starting to crack down on social media and start to tax them and everything else, because just like Facebook admitted to, and so did Twitter, they were greatly responsible for the uprising in Egypt, and they actually helped push Egypt. So you don't have to form unions anymore as long as you have the app. Now, let's switch to other places there is a shortage of gasoline there is a shortage of food okay we understand that but here's where something new is happening in france one of the original demands of the yellow vests was and i'm not kidding free parking in disneyland paris they one of the things one of the demands they wanted was free parking at Disneyland Paris. Now, if you don't understand, if that seems crazy to you, which it does me, it is crazy. If it seems crazy, it's because you haven't really fully understood what kind of changes are happening to our world. And there's a reason for it. People, are, people have very high expectations in these successful countries. And anything that will help them cut their expenses or give them free stuff is being pushed. Just get me free stuff. And the more free stuff that is out there, the harder it is for, for instance, a government to be able to pay for all that free stuff. It's an overwhelming of the system. People are now just starting to say, well, I own that parking lot too. That parking lot wouldn't be here if it wasn't for us. I mean, it's in France. Should be free parking at Disneyland for everybody. Also, at the same time, in France, something else is happening. Farmers are upset at the climate change plans. Climate change, if you think it's unpopular here, climate change with anyone in the socialist-leaning countries um, is growing really unpopular with farmers and people, but only people, who consume food. Because it's jacking the price of food up. When the government says we have to cut these programs to save money, nobody wants to hear that. It's starting to uh, set people on fire. Because they're also jacking up things like things for climate change. So here's what we have. We have the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere with the most dysfunctional politics, Haiti. And it's seeing protests because the situation is bad. But in the same hemisphere, we also have Chile 
It's the wealthiest country in Latin America. And it has falling inequality. So why are they protesting? Let me give you let me give you one other thing. I told you 10 years ago, in the future, the operative word will be chaos. And anything that causes chaos, get away from. Because we know who the author of chaos is. So get away from anybody who's trying to cause chaos. Let me show you one other thing. Governments cannot work. Governments fail when the gears get jammed. This is what this is what saboteurs were during the war. Saboteurs were people that would put a a monkey wrench into the gears. That was an actual thing in the industrial revolution. Somebody would take a wrench and they'd throw it in the gears and it would break the gears and jam the machine up so it would stop the factory from producing things. That was a saboteur. Do we have saboteurs in our midst now? And I don't mean just here, I mean all around the world. Because the gears of the machine is stopping. Let me just give you a couple of stops here. Benjamin Netanyahu looks like he's going to have to quit. He's been reelected, but he cannot put together a coalition. Coalition-style parliamentary governments only work when there's goodwill. There is no goodwill. Everybody is standing their ground. Everybody is saying, my way or the highway. So, Benjamin Netanyahu looks like he's going to retire and quit. And hopefully they'll find somebody else that can put a coalition government. But don't count on it, because look what's happening in England. You have Boris Yeltsin, or Boris Yeltsin, Boris Johnson, who is just trying to follow the dictate of the people. They voted Brexit. The extremists in Parliament are saying no Brexit. At any cost. So screw the people. Monkey wrench. Boris Johnson can't put together a coalition. There is no coalition left. Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau won in Canada, but he doesn't have a margin big enough to put together a coalition government. So now the machinery in Canada is also stopped. And I would say that while we don't have a parliamentary system here, look at our machinery here. Because one side refuses to work and listen to things that they themselves four years ago said they wanted. Because they won't act on those things, because they will stand against those things, because they're against one person and putting that one person ahead of the whole country. You don't have a coalition. You don't have good faith. You have nothing that will work. Congress cannot get anything done. The administration cannot get anything done because they're fighting over things that, honestly, nobody in the country cares about. Everyone in the country wants us to move forward. 
So let me just ask you a question. And this is an honest question. Is this really a coincidence? Now, it could be because everybody seems to have just been violating their social contract uh, contract with with uh, with the people all over the world. So it could be. But it's interesting how no one seems to be learning the lesson. Things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And what do people do? While Barcelona burns? Ah, we've got models out there twerking in the streets. What? Is anyone taking this seriously? Is anyone seeing what's happening to the entire world? It might be a coincidence. But then again, it might not be. And we turn to AOC and Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton in one minute. You remember in uh, Twister, uh, one of the characters comes running towards the camera. He's like, it's coming, it's coming, run for your life. And the other character says, no, it's already here. That was the tagline in, you know, all the trailers. No, I don't <laughs> remember that. Who would remember that? Do people mean? remember the dialogue of Twister? There's one thing you remember from Twister, which is a cow flying by. That's it. That's the only thing that anyone remembers from Twister. You don't remember the guy's the screen? It's coming. It's coming. That was the commercial for it over and over and over again. I don't remember that. That was that, and they they tied themselves to a pipe to survive a, a tornado, which is totally realistic Could science. Could you let me do a commercial? Sorry. My Patriot Supply has you covered. Because uh, Stu will be the guy who's like, I don't remember you saying that. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> and I'll say, it's already here, Stu. Get off my porch. My Patriot Supply uh, are the experts in emergency preparedness, and they have guaranteed two-day delivery. Now, disasters aren't going to wait, so why should you? When the chips fall, find yourself prepared or in trouble with Stu. This week, you'll save $70 on two-week emergency food kits when you go to the website preparewithglenn.com. That's My Patriot Supply. Their food kits last up to 25 years in storage, including breakfast, lunch, and dinners. They're really, really good. You order a few today and receive guaranteed two-day delivery discreet to your door. You take action so you're ready when something comes. Because it's almost here. Save $70 right now. Just go to preparewithglenn.com. That's preparewithglenn.com. We break for 10 seconds. Station ID. All right. Uh, so I, I want to, I'd like to, I'd like to just give you this headline. Democrats 2020 race has a new shadow. Hillary Clinton. Some Democrats are putting caution signs up for Hillary Clinton as she wades back into presidential politics by casting a 2020 candidate, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, as a Russian asset, mocking President Donald Trump's dealings with foreign leader and drawing counterattacks from both. Bernie Sanders wrote yesterday, people can disagree on issues, but it is outrageous for anyone to suggest that Tulsi is a foreign asset. 
Uh, Larry Cohen, one of Sanders' top supporters, was uh, conciliatory but warned in an interview that Clinton could harm the eventual 2020 nominee by weighing in against specific candidates. And now they're thinking that maybe, maybe she's thinking about running. Of course she is. <laughs> there's a, I mean, there's no chance of winning, but of course she's thinking that. You think really? Oh, yes. I mean, she's thinking about it. Yeah, no, I'm not saying anyone else is thinking about it. She is thinking about it. She's thinking about it all the time. Oh, they'll come crawling back to me. They will. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when they went with, she went with the double stack conspiracy theory yesterday mm. with that it was Tulsi Gabbard was a Russian uh, agent and Jill Stein was a Russian agent. At that point, you <laughs> yeah. kind of thought she's a little desperate and certainly mm-hmm. obsessed about this. Oh right? no, she but you is, don't think she's actually jumping in, do you? I think she's she is waiting for the moment where they're just going to come and ask me. I know they'll come and ask me <laughs> to leave because that's what people no, are asking her. At she this point. is delusional. She is delusional, and the Democrats know that they're in trouble mainly because of the split in the party. I mean. I don't know if you've seen the headlines uh, in the last 24 hours, but because of Ocasio-Cortez, they're now saying, is the Democratic Party, as we know it, over this election? And I think so. I I mean, you mean it changes into something I mean that what Ocasio-Cortez and the squad endorsing Bernie rips that... Apart. Well, they're setting a, a pretty clear signal. I mean, you know, think about this. You have, we're in a moment where Warren is arguably the front runner, right? Warren's going to give you 95% of what you want out of, out of your socialist candidate. 95%. Yeah. Okay. Why now do you pick now to endorse Bernie Sanders, a yeah. guy who can barely walk across the stage? Now, I want you to listen to this because I think this is spot on. Now, listen, remember, Bernie Sanders just had a heart attack. Yeah. Okay, he's falling in the polls. She's rising. uh, uh, Biden is falling in the polls. Warren is clearly the one to rally around. And again, Sanders just had a heart attack. And they pick that moment to endorse. Why? Why? Number one, she's saying, this is my movement. As soon as Bernie's gone, I'm in it. It's me. It's I'm the head of this socialist movement. Uh, I am the one to be the to, to to bring the torch forward, and this is not something that's going away. And number two, there is no compromise when it comes to socialism. There is no ninety five percent of what we want from Elizabeth Warren. We want a hundred percent of it. We're not satisfying for someone who still says they're a capitalist despite all evidence. We are the per- people that are going to say no. We want them to say they're socialists. We're not embarrassed about it, and we're going forward. And and going forward, when Bernie. Uh, does decide to uh, to stop running, uh, it's my game. Yep. She will take the, the torch up. And all you have to do is know what party she was actually working for. It's not the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And go back and listen to what Sank said the night of the last election. We're tired of these people. We'll destroy them. The best of the Glenn Beck program. Hey, it's Glenn, and you're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. If you like what you're hearing on this show, make sure you check out Pat Gray Unleashed. It's available wherever you download your favorite podcasts. 
Okay, here's the story from Vanity Fair. In the last 10 minutes of trading at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange on Friday, September 13th, someone got very lucky. That's when he or she, or a group of people, sold short 120,000 S&P E-minis. They're electronically traded future contracts linked to the Standard & Poor's 500 stock index. When the index was trading around 3,010, that's when this purchase came in to sell it short. The time was 3.50 p.m. in New York, and it was nearing midnight in Tehran. A few hours later, drones attacked a large swath of Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure, choking off production in the country and sending oil prices soaring. By the time the CME opened for pre-trading Sunday night, the S&P index had fallen 30 points, giving that very fortunate trader or traders a quick $180 million in profit. Now, does that sound like something that Donald Trump or one of his people are doing? And does that sound like the chaos he's creating? It was not an isolated occurrence. Three days earlier, in the last 10 minutes of trading, someone bought 82,000 S&P E-minis when the index was trading at 29.69. It was nearly 4 a.m. on September 11th in Beijing, where a few hours later, the Chinese government announced that it would lift tariffs on a range of American-made products, as has been the typical reaction in the U.S. stock markets as the trade war with China chugs on without any perceptible logic. When the news about the potential resolution of, you know, seemed positive, stock markets go up. The news was viewed positively. The S&P index moved swiftly on September 11th to 29.96, up nearly 30 points. That same day later, President Donald Trump said he would postpone the tariffs on some of the Chinese goods and the S&P moved even higher, up 47 points. The person that bought the 82,000 E-minis just before the market closed on September 11th uh, saw, a, uh, saw a movement up. Uh, an E-mini contract worth $50, uh, just moving up 47 points, is now worth 2350 That person or persons made $190 million. Now, that sounds to me like that one was coming maybe from China, somebody that knew China, or they were just extremely lucky. A week earlier, three minutes before the CME closed on September 3rd, someone bought 55,000 e-mini contracts with the index at about 2906, around 9 p.m. New York, 9 a.m. Hong Kong. Market started moving, kept rallying for six hours, then reaching 2936, around 2 p.m. Hong Kong, 2 a.m. New York, Carrie Lam. The Hong Kong leader announced that she would be withdrawing the con- controversial extradition bill that had been rolling the city in protest for months. Somebody there made $82 million. But then somebody who bought 420,000 September E-minis in the last 30 minutes of trading in June 28th, that was 40% of the day's trading vol- volume. They made a trade that no one could ignore. President Trump was already in Osaka, Japan, 14 hours ahead of Chicago, on his way to a roughly hour-long meeting with uh, China's President uh, Xi. As part of the G20 summit, Saturday in Osaka, the market had closed, blah, blah, blah. Trump emerged from the meeting with Xi and announced that they had the intermittent trade talks were back on track. That person made a profit of $1.8 billion dollars. 
the when this happened on September 11th, um, a financial expert who now does a show on Blaze TV uh, was called in by the Pentagon and said, can you do the forensics on this? And he found that, indeed, somebody shorted the market uh, and it looked like it was a sovereign fund. Kevin Freeman was that guy, and he's on with us now. Hi, Kevin. Kevin, are you there? I am, Glenn. How are you doing? I'm good. So this is this story is presented as if it is uh, Trump that is, you know, possibly uh, uh, involved here. But this looks like it, it would be sovereign funds or investors that have inside information outside of the U.S., uh, and not about U.S. Uh, movements on things. Are these? Is this just a string of coincidence, or does this look like a pattern to you that we should be looking into? Well, there's no question it's a pattern, number one. Number two, it is not President Trump. He wants to see the market go up every single day, all day, every day, uh, during the period of his presidency. He has no, no desire whatsoever to manipulate the market uh, during this. His trades would be noticed. There's no way he's he's behind it. But Foreign governments are behind it. It's what I wrote in my book, Secret Weapon. It's what I talked about when you first uncovered my research from the Pentagon. It's what we've talked about on the show all the time. Foreign governments have interest in manipulating our market or traders associated with foreign governments. They want to both profit, but they also want to destroy the American economic system. So is this the beginning? Is, has this been going on forever? Because, I mean, if I'm Tehran and I'm really struggling for cash and I'm going to launch some things, I immediately short the markets uh, because I know it will affect, and that will just give me more money for whatever it is I'm trying to do. Well, there's no question. In fact, um, Osama bin Laden was found to have manipulated the market prior to 9-11. And, you know, they dismissed it in the 9-11 commission, but there are several collegiate university studies that came back afterwards and said, no, there was unusual trading activity in United Airlines and in reinsurance companies and so forth before 9-11. This is a path to profit if you don't mind manipulating, causing harm to people and so forth. Of course, you it's an old mob technique. You know, you take out insurance on a on a warehouse, and then, and then you burn down the warehouse. So absolutely, it's a way to make money, and it's a way to uh, manipulate the global system. So what has stopped people from just making money like this in the past? Do, I mean, is this is this something new that we're dealing with? No, it's not entirely new, but it certainly has ramped up recently, and certainly with the Iranians. I mean, we gave... For example, during the Obama administration, we gave the Iranians something like $150 billion to play nice and be good and so mm-hmm. forth. Uh, but now they're desperate for capital. And under the Trump administration, we're, we're really locking down in a lot of areas. And so this is their way to lash back and to access capital. So um, the, the market should know who's making these transactions, right? Can't we, can we, is there a way to track them? No, you can do a lot of this in secret through dark pools and and other places. And keep in mind, we just assume that every trade is economic. That's something that we're born and bred into. So a trader says, well, somebody's trying to make money, this is economic. And so we assume that they're acting nice and, and being legal and appropriate. It's not always the case. So what we say in the economic war room is what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. 
and the, there's no real way to uh, to track down some of these foreign trades. You you can say they're unusual. Where is it coming from? But there's no real way to trace and understand what happened in in 2008. For example, we looked at the short selling on the banks. And you had to go through like seven layers before you found out where it came from, which was a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East. It took, you know, they were trades placed by traders, placed by uh, dart pools, placed by you just keep going back until you finally found where it was. And it takes a while to do that uh, forensic analysis. Are you concerned at all? You know, we've talked on this program about the I think it's 50 trillion dollars that China has just printed uh, and 24 of that uh, looks like it went to offshore accounts and uh, was invested in stocks, bonds, et cetera, et cetera, here in the United States and in the West. That really I mean, that is a staggering amount of of money that if somebody wants to collapse the market, you know, 20 trillion dollars, 15 trillion dollars uh, makes the market move dramatically, does it not? Yeah, it would. You normally wouldn't be concerned because a, a major nation would realize that the blowback if you destroyed the global financial system would be so severe. The frightening thing to me is that China has, along with Russia and other nations, created virtually an alternative economic system that doesn't use the Western system at all. So they may not use the SWIFT transaction system. They've created their China payment system. They may not use the International Monetary Fund. They may use the Asia Development Bank. And so normally you'd say, well, no sane nation that's not collapsing would, would um, you know, collapse the world economy because it would just damage them too much. But we're fast approaching the point where they may have an alternative system. If they wanted to pull the plug on the West, they could restart very quickly, and they would be winners from this. And this is something that's actually out in the literature. It's something they've talked about in Unrestricted Warfare, and it's also something that the Russians talked about uh, more than, uh, well, 20 years ago now. Well, they, but they've also taken action steps on those. They're both stockpiling gold. Um, and they uh, both have negotiated with Saudi Arabia to get off of the petrodollar, uh, and so they've they've already taken those steps to to show us that they are moving towards getting away from the Western standards. Absolutely correct, hundred percent. Okay, and it never makes me feel good when I talk to you, Kevin. Uh, I mean, I always am glad because I know you know these things, but. I guess there's part of me that's like, I don't I don't know if I really want to know these things. What should we be looking for, Kevin? Well, one, one of the signs are, would be um, an issue that we're dealing with is the thrift savings plan, where the Chinese are still seeking to access Western capital. And so in the thrift savings plan of the United States, which is all of our pensioners and retirees and veterans and so forth, that's going to be invested in the MSCI International Index, which is heavily weighted to China, much against the patriotic a veteran who doesn't want his money going into Chinese stocks. As long as they continue to access Western capital, uh, they're probably not pulling the plug yet. They're just preparing for it. And, and that, that is a massive push to take billions and billions of dollars from our thrift savings plan and put it into uh, Chinese companies. It will be very painful when they switch over. 
Um, it will be more painful for us than them if they succeed. Their economy, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, their economy is not the powerhouse juggernaut that it once was. They're struggling. And President Trump, as the first president in my lifetime, actually stood up to the Chinese. So this is a war, and we're finally beginning to recognize it. There's no other signal we need to realize that they're fighting an economic war against us. We've seen everything we need to see, and what you're mentioning here about uh, currency that they're push, pushing around the world to the tune of trillions just boggles my mind. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. Hey, it's Glenn. And if you like what you hear on the program, you should check out Pat Gray Unleashed. His podcast is available wherever you download your favorite podcast. Hi, it's Glenn. If you're a subscriber to the podcast, can you do us a favor and rate us on iTunes? If you're not a subscriber, become one today and listen on your own time. You can subscribe on iTunes. Thanks. Okay, so we've been hearing a lot about wealth tax, and I don't even think most people even know what a wealth tax is, and they stop listening because it's only going to affect, they say, only going to affect those people making, uh, you know, or have a billion dollars uh, or more. Uh, but it's going to be a tax on everything they own. So their art, the the money they gave to their kids, uh, you know, uh, all of it, all of it. And so uh, it doesn't seem to be constitutional at all. But everybody is loving it because it doesn't affect them and it's going to raise all this money. But it's unconstitutional. Uh, Kyle Salmon is the senior contributor for The Federalist. Uh, he has a podcast. He's co-host of Conservative Minds. Welcome to the program, Kyle. How are you? Good. Uh, thanks for having me on, Glenn. You bet. Um, so you wrote a very good article in The Federalist about why Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax is completely unconstitutional. But can you, can you, can you explain it in simple layman's terms uh, why and what a direct tax is? Uh, you know, just kind of break this down for us. Sure. Um, And the distinction, I mean, between direct tax and indirect tax is one that doesn't come up very much. But it was something discussed at the Constitutional Convention because the Founding Fathers, the the government they were living under, the Articles of Confederation, did not have the power to tax. They had to just ask the states for money and hope they got it. So a lot of times they didn't get it because the states didn't want to pay it. So when they wrote the Constitution – They thought, well, okay, we need to be able to tax directly so Congress can levy a tax and we can pay for the Army and the Navy and everything else we need to pay for. But they didn't want to give them too much power to tax. They didn't want them to overwhelm the states and take away all of the people's money and and put themselves in a worse situation. So they, they split the difference and said that Congress could tax, but they couldn't do any direct tax unless it would be apportioned by population. So what does that mean? Uh, at the Constitutional Convention, Rufus King of Massachusetts asked, what is the precise meaning of direct tax? And according to Madison's notes, nobody answered and they moved on. So we didn't... <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So, so even in the beginning, it was sort of a compromise language. But as, they, as we moved on, it kind of took on the idea that a tax on people or property is a direct tax. A tax on sales or imports is an indirect tax. So Congress always has taxed imports or had the, had the ability to tax imports. I mean, that's that's tariffs, and we've had that since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the uh, you know Alexander Hamilton came up with the whiskey tax, which caused a little stir in the West, but it was definitely constitutional because it was a tax on on the sale of of whiskey. Okay. But 
they could not tax property directly was the idea, um, unless they apportioned that tax among the states so that each state paid its share according to population, not according to property. Effectively, this made property taxes impossible because it wouldn't make any sense. Um, what, why? If you had two states that had the same population, say, um, but one of them was rich and one of them was poor, they'd both have to sit, pay the same amount of property tax to the government. But mm. it would effectively mean is that each poor person in the poorer state had to pay the same amount as the rich people in the richer state, which okay. is sort of the opposite of how taxes, even in those days, were meant to go. So it had to be apportioned by the state, meaning California and South Dakota would pay the exact same rate and uh, as a state. Yes. But it, but if, if one was California that had all the rich people there and South Dakota had none of the rich people there, they're screwed. Yeah, and that's why Congress never really imposed a tax like that, because okay. it would have made no sense and everyone would have been angry. So we, that worked for about 100 years, and then we get down to the first permanent income tax getting imposed in the 1890s. And people said, hey, isn't this the same thing? You know, you're taxing income, that's a direct tax. And the Supreme Court agreed, and they said you have to apportion this, which basically meant they were going to repeal it because of the same problems. Then we passed the, the 16th Amendment a few decades later that says you can do direct taxes on income, but all the other direct taxes are still not permitted unless they're apportioned. Well, what is the difference between my income uh, and my stuff? Well, that, that's what the court said in, in, in Pollock, the case that struck down the, uh, the unapportioned income tax in the 1890s, because they said, look, if you have property and we can't tax that directly, now you get income from that property and we can, it doesn't make sense. It's the same thing. Right. Right, where you can't tax a person directly, but you can tax his income? That doesn't make sense. Right. So that's what that was struck down, and it's only legal now because of the 16th Amendment, which carved out this one part of direct taxation. And left everything else closed. So it's only about income tax. Right. And they had to change the Constitution to make it that direct tax could only be income. Right, and it's it's pretty broad. It's income on, you know, any kind of income you get, they can tax, and they do. But... It's got to be income. It can't be just property. And that's why there is no federal property tax. I mean, we have, you know, in your state or your township or whatever, your school district, you might pay a property tax. But there's no federal property tax. And this is the reason, because it, you know, without going through these weird math computations to make it fit the Constitution, it's not constitutional. So how is Elizabeth Warren, I mean, besides getting away with it with the American people because they just don't know, uh, how is she planning on pulling this off? She hasn't had a good answer for that. I mean, that's that's kind of... Uh, John Delaney brought it up in the last debate that he was allowed to participate in, and they kind of just moved on from it, but he raises a very good point. This is something that, you know, we've had 100-plus years of, of direct tax jurisprudence that says you, you can't just tax property directly. The one thing that, I, I mean, one thing that's kind of confused the issue is in the Obamacare case, we were, you remember that... You know, the, they struck down the uh, the insurance mandate, but said it could survive as a tax. Mm -hmm. And in the dissent, uh, Justice Scalia brought up this direct tax question and said, "Wait a minute! If you're if you're saying this is a tax, this is a tax on the person not having insurance. That sounds a lot like a direct tax, not an indirect tax." And Justice Roberts kind of shrugged this off and said, "It's." He listed a bunch of direct taxes that existed in the 1790s. The first time the court looked at this and said, "It's not one of these, so it can't be a direct tax." But wow. that sort of 
it's sort of a backward reasoning because, of course, it's not one of those. They didn't have, they didn't even have health insurance in the 1790s. <laughs> right, right. Not having health insurance. Right. So that kind of muddied the waters a little bit, and perhaps Warren thinks she could, you know, if if the Democrats succeed in court packing, just you know. So tell me the tell me the ramifications because people it's people with a billion dollars they have it they won't miss it. Tell me the ramifications of it. Well, I mean that's that's part of it too. It's not just the billionaires. It's um it actually starts at if you have fifty million, which is still it's more than I'll ever have. But it's you know, it's a lot closer. And the problem is. That's what Warren said. She said it's two percent. It's on the only the very rich are going to pay it. You know, who cares, right? But that's exactly even down to the percent what they said about the income tax in 1895. Yep. They said it was a two percent tax, and it was only on people making four thousand dollars a year or more, which in today's money is about one hundred and sixteen thousand. You know, it was less than one percent of the population. And they so, said, if I re- if I remember right, they said it would never go above seven percent. And right. it would never be paid by anybody but the uber-rich. Yeah, this was just a rich man's tax, you know. Right. And then people got behind it, and they said, well, yeah, look at these guys. They, you know, this guy owns 100 factories. He can pay 2%, right? But it, it's never, it never stops at that. Once they get access to a new form of taxation, it always creeps in and goes more. And especially because something like a wealth tax, um, and uh, Lawrence Summers, Clinton's Treasury Secretary, brought this up more than once in response to Warren's plans, it's not going to take in as much money as she thinks. It's uh, people they've tried it in Europe over the decades, and it it never brings in as much because people hide their their stuff. Or then you have things that like the things that regular folks own. You know how much they're worth, you know. But the things that rich people own are sometimes hard to value. And then that what that turns into is just a an audit every year because this is an annual tax where she wants two percent every year of all your stuff. Which doesn't that over time just delete? Uh, just deplete your stuff. Yeah, I mean, that means you have to earn 2% on all of your investments just to keep them. And some things aren't owned as investments. I mean, sometimes you might, you know, people own a house, it might not go up 2% every year. I think most don't. You know, but you don't own it necessarily for an investment, you know, because it's the place you live, you know, or other things, you know. I mean, things you, you know, art, it can be an investment, but that market is very up and down, and art collectors don't, always buy because they want appreciation they buy because they think it's beautiful and they want it on their house hmm. so keeping yeah this this basically says if you don't earn two percent on these investments every year in a way that you can pay to the government like you earn two percent cash really because if you you know if your house goes up two percent it doesn't mean you have that two percent it's you, yeah, have, you have to have the you, you have to have the two percent in cash which yeah. might require you selling an asset to be able to hit that Right. So it's it's a very and then you know I mean we have we have estate taxes where audits go on for years on these big estate taxes. I, I mean I I began my legal career as a trust and estates attorney and there's a whole lot that goes into those and they only happen once a generation. This would happen every single year. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right, Kyle, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, All right, thank you. You bet. We wanted to have him on. Uh, he's podcast host, Conservative Minds. wanted to have him on because he took this very complex thing and, and made it pretty simple in The Federalist. Uh, and there's just no way to do it. And the ramifications of stuff like this, it fundamentally changes. If they can get away with this, like Obamacare. If they can get away with this, if they can start to say, no, we can have direct taxes like this, 
they're going to go after everything because they have to. They have to. If they are wanting to spend an extra $50 billion, a trillion to $100 trillion in the next 10 years, they have to have access to everybody's stuff. That's still not going to be enough. No, still not. But I mean, they're talking about if you think that it starts at 50 million and it stays at 50 million, you're nuts. It's, it's going to be, do you have 50,000 in your bank account? Well, then we need a percentage of that, too. And you know, what do you have? What about your stocks? What about your retirement funds? You don't come after all of that. You don't own anything. You don't own anything. That's goes against everything this country has stood for. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. Like listening to this podcast? If you're not a subscriber, become one now on iTunes. And while you're there, do us a favor and rate the show. Uh, Max Lucado is here, and uh, one of the reasons why I'm having him on, I'm just being transparent, is he's friends with Chip and Joanna Gaines, and they're my favorites. <laughs> and I'm a huge fan, and if you ever just want to pass my name out there and say, Gee, you know, I have a friend, and he'd love to have dinner with you guys, feel free, Max. I'm just saying, feel free. Um, those, those two people, if you watch Chip and Joanna, they have a, what seems to be a happy family because they seem to have fun with each other. They laugh, they love each other. They support each other. In your book, you talk about how it's got to be a five to one ratio, positive to negative. Are you there, Max? Yes, yes, okay. yes. And you talk yes. about how you have to have, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have more positive uh, yeah, going out yeah. than negative. Talk about mm-hmm. families and relationships. Yeah, yeah. You're right about Chip and Joanna. They're just splendid people. I, I wish I knew them better, but I, I know Chip better than I know Joanna. So, you, and, uh, I mean, you know Chip enough to say, hey, you should get together with my friend Glenn, right? I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll send him a text right now. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, Max, go ahead. Uh, you, you know, this whole issue of happiness, the, the big idea is that we, we, find, we can find happiness by making other people happy. That's, that's really the, what we cherish about people who have a genuine happiness. They, they haven't found it because they won the lottery. They haven't found it because they found a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. They found it because they discovered that the secret to happiness is is making other people happy. Mm-hmm. And, and you cited some really fascinating research, and that is that healthy, happy marriages have a, a five-to-one ratio of encouraging words uh, over negative wounds, uh, negative words. Uh, the, the truth is words can wound people. Words can bless people. Some people's words are like water on an oak tree. Some people's words are or like a poison or, or some type of toxicity on an oak tree. And, um, and so what, what I urge people in this book is look at the ways that you can make other people happy. Because you, you set out today to make five or ten people happy. You just set out today to, to give them words of encouragement, to bless them, to compliment them. And you'll be amazed how the, the clouds part in your own sky and uh, and it really will you really will find that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You know that sounds like such, you know, dime store um, uh, 
yeah. advice. Sounds too simple, but, doesn't it? Right, but it is true. I am convinced, Max, that, you know, it, we are arguing so much about how bad things are in our past and everything else. If we just said, you know what, let's put that on the table for a while. Let's put that on back burner for a while. There are 50 million slaves right now enslaved in the world. Let's let's wow. work together to get those yeah. people out of bondage. I think yeah. we would forget about all of our problems quickly. Yeah. And the people yeah. we thought we were you know, enemies with would soon become our friends because we were not focused on us. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely the truth. And, and that's a, that's a biblical truth. And it's increasingly being borne out by uh, by research. In in the first chapter of the book, I talk about what I thought was really a fascinating piece of research, in which um, in which volunteers uh, were uh, were were attached to an MRI scanner, and they were asked to imagine, uh, Glenn, not even do, but just to imagine doing good things for other people. And when they imagined it that part of our brain that is called the pleasure center just lit up like Christmas trees. And, and just the thought of doing something good for somebody generated the same uh, response that a good meal or a hobby uh, or a beautiful walk on, you know, in the, in, 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 on a trail on a blue, blue sky day, it, it generated that level of happiness. So the point is you don't have to change your circumstances to find happiness. That's the big lie. Mm-hmm. And that is, if I can get my circumstances right, then I'll be happy. All we need to do is go from the posture of everybody take care of me to the posture of I'm going to try to serve other people. Uh, I heard a speaker, actually, I did, my wife heard a speaker just over the weekend uh, bemoan what you were talking about, and that is the, the decrease in, in church attendance. And I love to explore that with you. It's, it's a disturbing fact. And he said, I wonder how much of that is the fact that we live in a society where if your coffee isn't exactly the way you want it, you walk it back up to the counter and they'll make you a brand new one and give you an apology. Or if your pizza is not the way you want it, they'll, they'll send a team to your house and, and bring you a new pizza. And he said, I wonder if, if we've created an attitude in, in churches of all sorts that uh, if you don't like the temperature or the song or something the preacher said, then, you know, it needs to be fixed to serve me. It's, 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 a, it's a consumer mindset uh, that, that is taken into churches, and consequently, no church is perfect, especially mine. <laughs> mm. And so people are saying, well, they're not, they're not meeting my expectations. And, uh, and, and as a result, the attendance is at an all-time low. I would like to actually explore that. Uh, <clears throat> let me take a break here. But I, before we do, let me just throw this out. My son uh, said to me Sunday morning, we're getting up to go to church. And he said, Dad, why do we have to go to church? I'm so tired. Why do we have to go to church? And I said, because we have to say thank you for all the things that have gone right this week and all the blessings that we have. We have a lot to be grateful for. And I, 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 I wonder if we have forgotten that this isn't our time to have things made right for us this is our time to go with gratitude and to hear what he's trying to tell us okay here's what you do next i don't know if we we have that attitude the blaze radio network 
on demand.